That music is Bach's Sonata No. 4 in E minor, played on the clavichord by Balint Karosi. And this is Sam Biagetti of Historian Splaining. And this lecture will be on the origins of the First World War, Part 2, Serbia. And this lecture will be brought to you by the letter G. So my first lecture on the beginnings of the First World War was about the height and the decline and breakdown of the Ottoman Empire, the power that controlled the entire Balkan Peninsula as well as almost all of the Middle East and North Africa, but that gradually declined and broke apart. Serbia is the country that arguably actually began the First World War. Although it was not their conscious intention, it was the presence, the dynamics, and to a great degree the actions of certain actors within Serbia that set the stage for the outbreak of that war. And it happens that Serbia, or the Serbian people, I should say, were the first ethno-national group ever to successfully rebel against Ottoman rule and achieve a degree of autonomy and self-rule within the empire by collective action. And they also were only the second national group after the Greeks to achieve full and sovereign independence in territory that had previously been the Ottoman Empire. So the Ottoman decline and the emergence of Serbia as a new state on the European scene are complementary and intertwined stories. And moreover, after Serbia achieved independence in the 19th century, they experienced almost the entire suite of problems and crises that we now see as the classic repeated leitmotifs of post-colonial politics and of so-called fledgling democracies. The struggle over constitutionalism versus authoritarianism. Struggles between civilian powers and the military. Ethnic strife. Border conflict. Conflicts between traditionalism and modernization, so-called foreign interference and exploitation as a pawn of larger, more established powers. All of these things that we've seen play out over and over again. All of these sort of, you could say, cliches of the 20th century of the so-called post-colonial world. All of these played out in some way in these new created Eastern European states in the aftermath of the Ottoman breakdown and first and foremost in Serbia. So what is Serbia? Where is Serbia? How and why did it come into the theater of European nation-states in the 19th century? Well, Serbia, unlike many other post-colonial states, does have a very long history, going back in some ways to ancient times, or at the very least into the early Middle Ages. Serbia is in basically the interior western part of the Balkan Peninsula. And its main traditional core is a region traditionally called Shumadia, or the forested land, basically in the foothills of the Balkan Mountains, on the southern side of the Pannonian Plain. The Pannonian Plain is a large, flat basin with very fertile land that is usable and valuable not only for its fertility, but also because the Danube River flows through it. And in many ways, everything about life and politics in the Balkan Peninsula in and around Serbia depends upon the Danube. So the Danube is the second longest river in Europe, the longest outside of Russia. 
It begins from small sources, springs and streams, on the northern side of the Alps, in what's now Germany. And from there, it flows gradually eastward and southeastward until it reaches the Black Sea. But as it goes, it passes through three distinct basins, three wide, large, flat valleys, each one separated by mountain ranges. The first one, the Upper Danube Basin, is in what's today Austria and Slovakia, and the cities of Vienna and Bratislava are in that basin. It then passes through a small mountain range in what's today Hungary and passes by the city of Budapest. And from there, it then flows and turns southward and cuts through the largest of the three Danubian basins, the middle basin, which contains the large Pannonian plain. It turns and cuts southward through this plain until it reaches that hilly area of the foothills of the Balkan Mountains, which I mentioned before, called Shumadia. And there it's joined by a tributary flowing down from the west to the east called the Sava. And the city that we know as Belgrade is located at that confluence of the Sava and the Danube at the southern edge of the Pannonian Plain. It then turns again eastward, running along the edge of the Balkan Mountains until it reaches a series of narrow, deep gorges, traditionally called the Iron Gate, which separates the Balkan Mountains in the south from the Carpathians in the north. And this is where it also crosses from what's today Serbia into Romania. And once it reaches the other side of the Carpathian Mountains, it then flows again into another wide, flat valley, the Lower Danubian Plain, in what's now Romania and Bulgaria, until it finally splits into a delta and flows into the Black Sea. So the Danube River provides an artery of travel and trade and communication through these three different valleys from Central to Eastern Europe. And it makes this largest basin with the Pannonian Plain, basically in the upper middle part of the Balkans, especially valuable and desirable. But the difficulty with the Pannonian Plain is that it's not defensible. It's vulnerable to raiding or attack from anyone who might be ensconced in all of these mountain ranges all around it. The Dinaric Alps to the west, the Balkan Mountains to the south, and the Carpathians to the north and east. So while the land is valuable and usable, it is a prize that almost anyone can seize. And so it has been seized and taken and split up over and over again. The Serbs are merely one people among many who have tried to stake out a defensible, stable home somewhere in the hills and mountains around this basin, while also moving and colonizing into the plain when peace and security make it possible. So it seems that in prehistoric times, the Pannonian Plain was fairly densely inhabited by various different tribes and societies, Illyrians, Dacians, Thracians, and others, until it eventually was colonized by the Romans. The Romans knew this wide basin as Pannonia, and the hilly region to the south, which in many ways is best positioned to take advantage of and try to secure and protect this region, they called Moesia. And the Romans found these lands to be highly valuable, both for their fertility and agricultural productivity, and also for the resources in the hills of Moesia, the timber, 
the stone quarries and rich mineral resources, which allowed them to open up mines for zinc, gold, copper, and other minerals. However, they also found it extremely difficult to defend. And especially in the later age of the Roman Empire, the Danube on the northeastern flank of the empire became the most troubled, the most dangerous frontier of the entire empire. And as a result, in the 200s and 300s, the Romans put in a great deal of resources to fortify and man this outer frontier. And they created large militarized garrison towns in the Pannonian Plain, especially along the southern edge, along the Sava and Danube rivers. And in particular, they built up two large military towns. Probably the largest one was the one called Sirmium on the Sava River, that tributary that I mentioned that runs out of the Dinaric Alps and eastward till it meets the Danube. And the second one on the far outer frontier, they called Singidunum, right at the confluence of the Sava and the Danube, basically at the site of the city we today know as Belgrade. And these were very important provinces that took up a lot of the attention and resources of the empire. It seems that somewhere between six and ten Roman emperors were actually born at the town of Sirmium in Pannonia, which can sound almost incredible, but in the later years of the empire, especially in the third century crisis, many emperors were fairly short-lived, and they were basically warlord generals who came in from the outer frontiers of the empire into Rome and were put on the throne by their troops or by the Praetorian Guard. And since the Danube was the most violent, the most unstable, and the most fortified frontier of the empire by those later years, it's not so surprising that many of these emperors who cycled through were actually from Moesia and Pannonia. When the empire was split into four governing districts, Sirmium actually briefly was the capital of one of them until power was basically reconcentrated in the entire eastern part of the empire in the new capital of Constantinople. And the eastern empire, which we now call the Byzantine Empire, was able to hang on to what for them now was the far northwestern frontier of their empire in the upper Balkans, but at great cost. And more and more, the entire region suffered from incursions, from migrating barbarian peoples coming down from Eastern and Northern Europe, who in some cases were increasingly aggressive as the decades went on. The Goths, the Avars, the Huns, and others. Eventually, this entire region that I've been talking about, around the Pannonian Plain and southward into the foothills and the mountains of the Balkans, this came to be colonized by Slavs. And the Slavs, it seems, were a sort of isolated, in many respects mysterious, Indo-European ethnic group that, it seems, originated somewhere in East-Central Europe, around what's now the borderlands of Belarus and Ukraine. And at some point, around 500 or so, for unclear reasons, they began to rapidly expand outward, especially East, West, and South. And a large branch of this Slavic tribe, with many smaller sub-tribes and clans, migrated and pressed southward into the Balkans and began colonizing these desirable lands around what we now call Serbia. 
And as these Slavs in the 500s, 600s, and 700s became more rooted and established in their local areas, they naturally began to diverge in many respects. And what had been a sort of shared, common South Slavic language started to diverge into more distinct dialects. These are the ancestors of various languages that we today might call Serbo-Croatian, Bosnian, Macedonian, Bulgarian, but that in many respects are still very close and to a great degree, especially those dialects around the Western Balkans, around this area that we're talking about now, remained somewhat close and fairly mutually intelligible, much like the Scandinavian languages in the far north of Europe. Gradually, a distinct group, it seems, emerged with their own elite, basically in what had been the Roman province of Moesia, centered especially in that particular district of rich foothills with forests, orchards, and pasture lands, that area that today in Serbian is known as Shumadia. And this particular Slavic group, ethno-linguistic group, confederation of tribes, whatever you want to call it, came to be called the Serbs. And for several centuries, confederations of Serbs put forward leaders who they might call by various titles like Knez, which more or less means prince or potentate. These confederations emerged onto the political scene and had to deal one way or another with Constantinople and with the Byzantine authorities who still claimed some sort of nominal sovereignty over all of the Balkans. And this began a long, complicated, negotiated power struggle, which occasionally broke out into outright warfare between this kind of autonomous Slavic collective called the Serbs or Serbia and the Byzantine Empire. Now, naturally, the Byzantines, as was common and fairly standard among Christian powers, sent out missionaries to try to evangelize this new emerging society in the hopes that this might pacify them. So in the mid-800s, the Byzantine authorities dispatched a pair of missionaries, two brothers named Cyril and Methodius, to try to bring Christianity to the peoples of the Balkans, especially the Serbs, and to do it before the Western Latin Christians did. So the goal was to bring them into the Greek Eastern style of Christianity and hence into the Byzantine sphere of influence. Before setting out, the brothers had lived in the town of Thessalonica in Macedonia, in what's now northern Greece. And some of the people in that city were Slavs. And so Cyril and Methodius studied and learned the language of those particular Slavic tribes that had migrated to Thessalonica, and which they called Slavonic. When they went into Serbia, they found that the Slavonic language that they had learned was close enough to be basically understandable to the Serbs and to other Slavs. And they then developed a new script called Cyrillic after Cyril, which was basically just adapted from the Greek alphabet, but with some revisions and additions to make it usable for writing Slavonic. And they began translating Christian creeds, liturgies, and scriptures into Slavonic using Cyrillic text. They brought these new ideas and the very idea of writing and literacy to the Serbian elite. 
and the Serbian upper class was gradually converted to Christianity. They found this new religion to be advantageous, to help them to become more connected and respected in the wider world of trade and diplomacy around Europe, even though on the downside they did have to formally accept some sort of Byzantine supremacy in both church and state matters. From the 800s onward, the Christian faith gradually spread through Serbian society until it was widely adopted. Churches and dioceses were created, and also especially monasteries, which were often the main real centers of learning and art. And Greek models of art and worship in the style of Constantinople and Thessalonica were imported into Serbia, but with a lot of adaptations to local tastes and customs and the Slavonic language was used as the main language of writing in both church and the princely court. And this particular form of Slavonic is what we now call Old Church Slavonic, and it became the main shared classical language of religion and literature and governance all around the Slavic-speaking lands of Eastern Europe. And this helped to give a sense of Slavic distinctiveness alongside these close ties to Greece and the Byzantines. So, hence the Serbian church, which was, loosely speaking, an Eastern Orthodox church aligned with Constantinople, was already fairly well developed by the 1100s, when the first strong monarchical state ruling over most Serbs in the Balkans emerged. And the creator of this larger, stronger principality was named Stefan Nemanja, and he ruled from 1166 to 96. He founded a ruling dynasty, the Nemanjic dynasty, that ruled for about 200 years and presided over a somewhat brief golden period of relative power and prosperity. So the emergence of this dynasty followed the trend of increasing stability, trade, and prosperity across much of Europe in the High Middle Ages, in the 11 and 1200s. And Stefan and his descendants were able to take advantage also of the relative weakness of the Byzantines at this point. So Byzantine power was at a low ebb in the late 1100s and the 1200s, which came to a head particularly when Constantinople itself was sacked by Western crusaders in 1204. So the Nemanjic rulers capitalized on the situation, built up and consolidated greater regional power. They seized territories to the west through the Dinaric Alps, all the way to towns on the Adriatic coast, and they then supported trade and contact with the West, especially through the prosperous port town of Dubrovnik. And they also encouraged German migrants with experience in metalworking to settle in Serbia and help to revive the mining industry and to reopen mines that had been dormant since Roman times. Stefan Nemanja sort of began this process of expansion and consolidation until he retired. He abdicated from the throne and retired to a monastery in 1196. He was succeeded firstly by his second son, also named Stefan, who after a brief power struggle took the throne, consolidated his authority, and then in 1217 was formally crowned as king. So this was a really significant symbolic move. In effect, Serbia for the first time was openly proclaiming its independence and gained some degree of international recognition. And hence, Stefan came to be called Stefan the First Crowned. Two years later, in 1219, the king declared the Serbian Orthodox Church to be fully independent and equal to the Greek Church. 
so they no longer accepted subordination to the patriarch in Constantinople, and the king chose his own younger brother, Sava, to serve as the first Serbian patriarch. And all through this era, the, the crown and the church were closely tied together. It became the standard custom for rulers to glorify their reign by building and supporting elaborate monasteries, which became the main centers of literature, poetry, philosophy, and especially visual art, such as mosaics and frescoes. Serbia came to rival even Constantinople in terms of the lavishness and sophistication of its religious art. And in this dynasty, the most impactful and long-reigning ruler was probably actually not a king, even though the rulers on the throne could use that title, but rather a queen, namely Queen Yelena, who was a dowager queen who took up power briefly as a regent when her husband, the king, died in 1276. But then even after their son reached maturity and took up rulership, she did not retire, but instead she took up a post as civil governor of the western half of the kingdom, which was very significant because the western area included those coastal towns, which were commercially and diplomatically important, and it also included a large number of Catholics, especially along the coast. And Yelena followed a policy of religious toleration, and she even openly patronized schools and monasteries and other religious foundations of both faiths, both Orthodox and Catholic. It is actually not known for certain where Yelena came from, but an early biography of her life claimed that she came from a French family, and there is corroborating evidence suggesting that she was related to other French nobles and rulers in Europe. And so it's very possible then that she was actually born and raised as a Catholic herself before converting to Orthodoxy and marrying into the Serbian royal family. And so her background may then have influenced influenced her policy. And this set a significant precedent for many years thereafter, arguably to some degree for all of Serbian history until recent times. So while Serbia was devoutly Orthodox, they nonetheless became accustomed to a certain degree of coexistence with Catholics. And as long as Catholic states, like say Venice or Austria, did not try to forcibly convert them, Serbs were accustomed more than most other Orthodox peoples to the idea of cooperation with Catholics, whether Slavs or other foreigners. And Serb rulers actually did often reach out to Catholic states to the West for possible allies, and even on one occasion reached out to the Pope himself to offer a political alliance. And they saw this as possibly promising if those Catholic powers could serve as counterbalances to the power of Constantinople. So this was a really different mentality and approach from most other Eastern Orthodox peoples. In the 1290s and early 1300s, the Serbian kings slowly expanded the kingdom's borders, building upon their regional preeminence. And this culminated with the most celebrated ruler of medieval Serbia, named Dushan, who came to the throne in 1331 after overthrowing his father. Dushan was a very skilled general, and he conquered far southward, even beyond the Balkan mountains, into Macedonia and even northern Greece. And he made Serbia into a regional imperial power, extending far beyond that traditional core homeland of the Serbs. 
1346, he proclaimed himself Tsar, or Emperor, placing himself thus on an equal plane with the Byzantine Emperor himself. In 1349, he enacted a constitution and uniform law code called Dushan's Code, clearly modeled to a great degree on Justinian's Code from the heyday of the Byzantine Empire back in the 500s. And so he was drawing upon the legacy of the greatest Byzantine emperor and arguably even claiming his mantle. And it seems that Dushan and maybe even some of his successors harbored hopes of eventually even conquering Constantinople itself. But this height of Serbian power did not last for very long. The Black Death hit Europe, causing instability all over much of the continent, including the Balkans. Dushan himself died in 1355, and he was succeeded by his son, Stefan Uroshneaki, who came to be called Stefan the Weak. And this expansive empire, which was multi-ethnic and multilingual, began to fragment. And even within Serbia itself, local princes and potentates started to seize control over small domains. The imperial crown was reduced to being more or less just symbolic. And hence this crumbling so-called empire was very unprepared when a new threat appeared on the horizon, which was the Ottoman Turks. So through the mid-1300s, the Ottomans had been steadily advancing westward through Anatolia, coming nearer and nearer to the Byzantine capital at Constantinople. In 1345, they skipped past the city and crossed over the sea and began to attack the eastern coast of the Balkans. Now, at this point, the Ottomans could still be seen as just a new emerging player in the complicated power struggles around the Byzantine Empire. And it was only later that it became more and more clear that they were a juggernaut, quickly rising to become a major new power. In 1371, they began to press over the Carpathians and through the Iron Gate into what had traditionally been Serbian territory. The Serbians met them and engaged in a battle called the Battle of the Maritza River, which the Ottomans won. And as a result, they were able to seize control of those far southern Serbian provinces in Macedonia and also to force various of those borderland Serbian chiefdoms and potentates to accept Ottoman overlordship and to become basically subordinate tributary states of the new rising Ottoman Empire. Not long after this battle, the Emperor Urosh died, and that turned out to be the end of the Nemanjic dynasty. There was no son to take up the throne, and there was a sort of power vacuum. So a son-in-law named Lazar basically put himself forward as the preeminent leader of the Serbs in this time of crisis and instability. He only took up the title of Knez, or prince. So Serbia, in this sense, had dropped back down to just being a principality. And Lazar was somewhat effective over the next 18 years at trying to hold together a kind of regional Serbian and South Slavic confederation to try to hold off the Ottoman advance. But over time, the Ottomans simply had more resources. They were the dynamic rising power, and they would come into Serbian territory again in 1389. And in March of that year, the Ottoman Sultan himself, Murad I, led an enormous army of 40,000 men, including the elite corps of Janissaries and various other militias and mercenaries, westward through the Balkan mountains into the southern territory of Serbia. 
and they were met by a confederation of about 15 to 20,000 European Christians, including Serbians as well as some Albanians, Croats, and others, under the leadership of the Prince Lazar. So the Ottomans significantly outnumbered the Christian resistors trying to stop them, but the Christian forces were able to use the defenders' advantage, especially in the mountainous terrain that they knew. And the two forces engaged in a battle at a place called Kosovo Polja, or the Field of Blackbirds. And it was a long, cataclysmic, bloody battle in which both leaders on both sides were killed. The Sultan was assassinated by a Serbian fighter who falsely pretended to defect to the Turkish side at the moment when it seemed that the Turks had the upper hand. And Prince Lazar died in combat. Thousands were killed on both sides until both forces, exhausted and depleted, withdrew. The conflict was inconclusive. Now, although this battle was more or less a draw, it's traditionally been looked back upon as a defeat for the Christians and as a kind of catastrophic day. You could say the great formative catastrophe, especially of Serbian history. There are several reasons for this. One is that while the Ottomans did not win on that particular day, nonetheless time was on their side. And little by little they would continue to weaken and undermine and chip away at the Serbian principality until later they were able to subordinate it and annex it as an Ottoman province. And this massive catastrophic battle at Kosovo Field in what is today known as Kosovo provides a sort of convenient set piece to explain how this happened, to encapsulate it in one sort of dramatic and symbolic confrontation, and particularly a confrontation between Christianity and Islam. And specifically, Prince Lazar has been sort of unofficially canonized, you could say, as a Serbian national hero and also as a sort of martyr hero for the South Slavic peoples, the Balkan peoples, and for Christendom more widely. This is often looked back upon as a sort of moment of sacrifice on the part of the Serbs giving up their heroic leader in an effort to protect all of Christendom. Now, because the Turks, too, were so devastated in this battle, they were not able to simply overrun Serbia. But the following year in 1390, the sort of regents and courtiers trying to keep the principality together were forced to make a partial capitulation and to work out an agreement where they would accept Ottoman overlordship and become a sort of subordinate tributary state to the Ottomans as they had been to the Byzantines centuries before. As part of this deal, the Serbians were able to keep running much of their own internal affairs, like the Orthodox Church, law courts, the tax system, and so forth. And they continued to be an autonomous so-called despotate within the empire. But this autonomy was slowly chipped away at, bit by bit, as the Ottoman authorities gradually demanded more and more involvement and control over Serbian affairs, especially because now Serbia had become the ultimate frontier of their empire in the West, and they had to ensure loyalty and control over man, land, and resources to defend this new front of the advance of Islam into Europe. At the same time, they closed in closer and closer around Constantinople, that traditional bulwark of Christendom in the East, and it was clear by 1440 or so that it was only a matter of time 
until they made a full-out attack and tried to capture that holdout Byzantine capital. So in the 1440s, the Serbs and some of their other allies, Albanians and other Slavic peoples in the Balkans, banded together and called for a crusade, for Christendom to strike back against the Ottomans. And they didn't get a whole lot of support from the West, but nonetheless, they pulled their forces together and set out on this crusade counterattack against the Ottomans, which lasted through the late 1440s and on through the 1450s, even as the Ottomans captured Constantinople in 1453. The Serbs fought on, but once they had secured Constantinople, the Ottomans, of course, were able to strike back with full force. And they flooded their janissaries, these formidable troops, into the Balkans and crushed the Serbian rebel forces and were able to capture their castles and strongholds one by one until finally the last remaining holdout Serbian capital at Smederevo, not far from Belgrade, fell in 1459. And at that point, basically what had been the Serbian governing elite within this autonomous despotate was destroyed. The lands were expropriated, the governmental and diplomatic offices were shut down. Many of the leaders, of course, were killed or at best were able to escape into exile to the north and west. And Serbia was reduced to a province ruled by Turkish officials from the Ottoman state. So all in all, Serbia was ruled as an Ottoman province for about 350 years, depending on how you count. And for most of that time, it was subject to the fairly standard Ottoman system. The Serbian Orthodox Church was allowed to remain and continued to operate autonomously, although it was subordinated again to the Greek Orthodox Church, which, as I talked about in the lecture on the Ottoman Empire, was pretty fully co-opted into the Ottoman governing system. Ottoman authority was maintained on the ground by units of janissaries stationed in Belgrade and often also at other forts and outposts around the borders. But over time, in the 1500s, there were fewer janissaries in Serbia as Ottoman control extended further northward to include Hungary so that Serbia was no longer right on the front lines of the empire. It came to be somewhat demilitarized. And they did enjoy some degree of relative stability and security. The land that had been seized from Serbian nobles and potentates was redistributed and granted to Turkish landlords called Sipahis. And these landlords had the right to take one-ninth of all the produce of the peasant farms on their lands. So most of the Serbian people, the vast majority, were peasants. And also some in the mountains were shepherds, animal herders of various sorts. The peasantry did have certain basic rights, like the right to dispose of their land holdings as they chose, to build or not build on them, to farm and grow or raise whatever sort of crops or animals they wanted, as long as they gave one-ninth of the produce to the landlords. They were generally fairly poor, but some could prosper at some times, depending on conditions. They lived in extended family units of often several dozen people called Zadrugas, who tended to have their own compounds. And each Zadruga, furthermore, was able to send the head of their family to small village councils, which then managed certain affairs like local disputes. In addition, the councils could elect their own headmen, or kind of uh, village leaders, 
who also then had the title of Knez, and who could act as spokespersons for the village. And these headmen were usually drawn from the ranks of minor local notables, such as wealthy peasants or shopkeepers, minor merchants. And this was basically the closest thing that the Serbs had to an indigenous elite outside of the clergy in the church. They were able to practice the Christian religion. The Serbian Orthodox Church was considered to be a branch of the Eastern Orthodox Milet, and it was able to keep its properties, manage worship, and follow and enforce canon law. And the clergy came to be admired among the peasantry and seen as allies and defenders of the Serbian peasants as against the Turkish ruling elite. And in this way, they took up a very similar sort of role to the Catholic clergy in Ireland, who were seen as kind of defenders and spokespersons of the largely Catholic peasantry as against the Protestant landowners and government officials. So the Serbs were overwhelmingly rural peasants, while the towns had fairly few Serbs in them. The larger towns especially were really polyglot assemblages of various foreign nations and ethnic groups. The merchants and artisans were largely Turks, Armenians, Italians, Roma, and others, including a small number of Jews. And these were mainly Sephardic Jews who migrated into the Ottoman Empire after the expulsions from Spain and Portugal. Christians and Jews were not allowed in government offices or in the military unless they converted to Islam. And Christians, specifically, were subject to divshirma, this forced levy, sometimes called the blood tax, of one-fifth of all boys. And this divshirma system was often resented, but it could also sometimes redound to the benefit of the Serbs and some Serbian men who had grown up in the Balkans and had been taken through Divshirma eventually rose to high offices in government and could then act as advocates for Serbs or other Slavs. Most notably, the Grand Vizier Sokolu Mehmed Pasha came to power in 1565, and he was a Bosnian by birth. He'd been taken from a shepherding family in the village of Sokol, Bosnia, and hence he continued to use this name Sokolu. Although he had converted to Islam, his family was Serbian Orthodox, and he restored independence of the Serbian Orthodox Church from the Greeks. And at his urging, the Ottoman government created a new Serbian Orthodox Patriarchate headquartered in Pech in Kosovo, in that southern mountainous borderland of Serbia that came to be called Kosovo in memory of the Battle of Kosovo. And the independence of the Serbian Orthodox Church then lasted for 200 years until it was eventually revoked in 1766. And Sokolu Mehmet Pasha, moreover, had his own brother appointed as the first Serbian Orthodox Patriarch, sort of echoing the actions many centuries earlier of Stefan the First Crowned, Serbian King, who also appointed his brother, Sava, to be the first Serbian Patriarch. The Serbian church became the main repository for what remained of Serbian high culture, literature, art, history, and it helped to maintain in some form a sense of collective identity and continuity, that people could continue to see themselves as part of a collective of Serbs who partook in a continuous narrative of Serbian history. Meanwhile, at the same time, a similar sense of Serbian collective identity and continuity through time was kept alive in popular or folk culture. 
So before the Ottoman conquest, there had long been a tradition of epic poetry in Serbian or Slavonic modeled on Greek epics, and they were developed and performed in the medieval court. Now, after the destruction of that court, this practice was transferred to the peasant folk, and bards and lay poets created a body of poems and songs, which they often played at home or in small gatherings, accompanied by the traditional one-stringed violin called the gusla. This body of folk poetry came to include long dramatic epics that were often quasi-historical and quasi-legendary. They can be grouped roughly into three cycles. Firstly, one celebrating the glories of medieval Serbia and of rulers like Dushan. The second, commemorating and narrating the Battle of Kosovo, celebrating the heroes and their sacrifices and also often embellishing the history. For example, creating the notion that the Christian side lost the battle due to a traitor who went over to the Turks. And this sort of addition to the tale, you could say, underscores then the tragic nature of the battle and also the fundamental importance of unity and loyalty. And thirdly, a cycle celebrating the bandits that often operated in the hills and mountains around Serbia under Ottoman rule. An especially famous one who became the most popular subject of ballads was Prince Marco, a mountain bandit warlord in the late 1300s, who actually, in reality, was a sword for hire and worked for various employers, including often for the Ottoman Turks. But much like El Cid in Spain, he was transformed in legend into a freedom fighter for the Christians against the Muslims. And he and other bandits could be romanticized as examples of rebellion and resistance to the Ottoman tyranny, much like the Robin Hood ballads, which started out as basically just adventure stories about a bandit, but then were adapted and romanticized into representing a freedom fighter. And all of these different stories and the ideals that they communicated could then be drawn upon at different times, including in times of crisis. And most especially, the Kosovo cycle would rise to become the most central as the Ottoman Empire fell into crisis. And the signs of decline and strain in the empire became apparent year by year, especially in the later 1600s. And the breakdown of Ottoman rule, which would then allow for the political rebirth of Serbia, really became manifest in an obvious, undeniable way, starting in 1683. And that, of course, is the year of the Ottomans' failed attempt to capture Vienna, when their siege failed and they were routed by a coalition of Catholic states led by Jan Sobieski of Poland. And the Ottoman forces, under the command of the Grand Vizier, were forced into a humiliating retreat, and they had to withdraw down the Danube River to Budapest, and then even further down into the Balkans. And in a series of treaties following this disaster, they ceded various northern territories, including Budapest and the rest of Hungary, to the Habsburgs. So hence, the new imperial border moved down from where it had been close to Vienna down to the Danube and Sava rivers, again right on the edge of Serbia. So most of the Pannonian plain was now under the control of the Catholic Habsburg dynasty. And Serbia once again is in a frontline position on the border of the Ottoman Empire, and Serbs could actually literally look right across the Sava or Danube river to the fertile Pannonian plain, which was now under the rule of a Christian power. 
So Serbs, of course, as Eastern Orthodox Christians, they were very wary of Catholics and of Catholic domination. But nonetheless, the Pannonian Plain by this point had been severely depopulated. It had been settled for many years by Hungarians and Germans, but many of them had been killed or had fled in repeated wars on the frontiers of the empire. And the Habsburgs, now that they controlled this fertile plain, they wanted to rebuild and repopulate it. And so hence, they entered negotiations with Serbian church leaders, and they offered to allow Serbs to cross northward into the Pannonian Plain, where they would receive grants of land and autonomy and self-rule as a community with their own laws and councils, on the condition that they would agree to form militias and serve as a frontline military buffer, protecting this low-lying plain from possible Ottoman attack. So after some negotiations in 1690, several thousand Serbs under the leadership of the Serbian Archbishop Arsenije crossed the river and settled in the plain, forming a Serbian colony. And this settlement in the Pannonian Plain might have remained just a small emigrant outpost, but migration northward continued and even increased over the course of the 1700s such that by the late 1700s, the southern Pannonian plain had become a major Serbian community called the Serb Duchy, or in Serbian Vojvodina. It grew and prospered and developed schools, a printing press, and became a major conduit for new ideas and connections to Western Europe. And in particular, the large town of Novi Sad on the Danube came to be known as the Serbian Athens. So why did this happen? Why did northward migration from the Ottoman territory into what was then Hungarian territory, why did it grow over the course of the 1700s? Well, during the 18th century, conditions in Serbia proper were continually deteriorating. So as we already said, it was once again a frontier of the Ottoman Empire and hence repeatedly became a battlefield, especially of wars between the Habsburgs and the Ottomans. It came to be remilitarized and occupied by more large Janissary Corps units. And this was happening just at the same time that the Janissaries were becoming more and more emboldened and openly defying the authority of the sultans, to the point that, as I mentioned in the previous lecture, they even took part directly in the overthrow of the Sultan Ahmed III in 1730. Furthermore, the Janissaries also had fewer and fewer connections to the Slavic people of the Balkans, since they were no longer being drawn from the Devshirma system. That had been phased out, and so now the corps was recruiting from various volunteers, mercenaries, bandits from all around the empire, and they operated more and more as sort of quasi-independent despotic gangs or even thugs. In addition to this political shift, there also was an increasing economic shift, So there was a tremendous demand in the 1700s for grain as the European population grew. And grain production more and more overtook mining as the main export industry of Serbia. And the Ottoman government in Constantinople wanted to up the grain production in Serbia in order to grow the much-needed tax revenue. And in order to encourage this increasing grain production, they gave more and more powers to the Sipahi landlords, enabling them to demand more labor and higher rents from the peasants, 
and the peasantry progressively was reduced to a condition more and more like serfdom. And this basically fits the common pattern of centrifugal breakdown in the empire, as the central imperial government at the Sublime Port weakened, and local potentates more and more were able to take the upper hand. And occasional resistance, like work stoppages by Serbian peasants, led to collective punishments. For example, in 1766, the Sultan was persuaded to finally revoke the independence of the Serbian Orthodox Church and subordinate it once again to the Greek Patriarch. So all in all, these worsening conditions and indignities were clear for all to see. And it fueled a major emigration northward into Vojvodina, where Serbs were comparatively more free and protected under the Austrian crown. And this also left behind a population vacuum in the old heartland of Shumadia. Many farmsteads and villages were virtually abandoned, and this population vacuum was largely filled by migrants, including Serbs and other Slavic shepherding and farming people from the mountainous lands down into Shumadia. So you could see there was a kind of continuous flow from south to north. And this situation of increasing discontent and rapid emigration came to a head finally in 1791 during a war between the Ottomans and Austria. And many Serbs, seeing how the Habsburgs actually treated the Serbs better at this point than the Ottomans did, sided with Austria and formed a Serbian militia that worked together with the Austrian military. Now, the war turned out to be a draw. The Ottomans were able to maintain their control of Serbia below the Danube. And after the war was over, the Janissaries carried out brutal, punitive campaigns. A set of four ringleaders, four officers called Daiz, based in Belgrade, more or less seized control of the province as a ruling cabal. And they rounded up and killed many Serb leaders and seized the lands, especially of many of the wealthier peasants, and gave them over to the use of their friends and cronies. Imperial officials and governors had precious little control over the situation, and they wanted to somehow reimpose order and imperial authority. And so in the late 1790s, the Sultan actually called on the Serbs to reorganize and reform their militia and to fight against these Janissaries to restore imperial control. This alliance failed since the Janissaries were still too strong and too skilled, and the imperial government had not yet built up a loyal modern army under imperial command. So the Serbs were defeated and their militia was disbanded, and the brutal crackdown and further collective punishments continued. Still, the Serbs did not entirely give up. And early in 1804, some Serbian notables and former militia members met in secret at a monastery and resolved to start another uprising, and this time to ignore the sublime port in which they now no longer had any confidence, and instead to ask for Russian support. And this made some degree of sense because there were religious and ethnic affinities between Serbs and Russians. They had a common Slavic heritage and a shared Eastern Orthodox faith, and so Russia appeared as a natural ally, and furthermore, it seemed to make sense strategically, since Russia at that moment was fighting against Napoleonic France. And France was a traditional ally to the Ottomans. So hence, if Russia was concerned about 
somehow undermining France than supporting the Serbs might seem to be an opportune way to do that. However, before this rebellion could start, the four Dayis got wind of the plot, and so they immediately began to round up and kill several dozen Serbian notables and priests, and they also sent out Janissary units in small squadrons around the countryside to arrest all the Knezes, or village headmen. This, in effect, forced the Serbs' hands, and notables began to flee out into the hills, where they then gathered together guerrilla warrior bands. And some of these notable leaders and warlords actually hoped still to somehow reconcile with the sublime port and reestablish Ottoman control in a way that excluded and restrained the rampaging Janissaries. But the peasant populace didn't accept this. The peasantry, it seems, who had actually suffered the most up to that point, demanded an all-out declaration of independence, a complete disavowal of all Ottoman authority, and no surrender. So in this situation, a council of rebel leaders met and declared an independent principality of Serbia. They elected as their leader Kara Georgia Petrovic, who had been a pig merchant in a village in Shumadia, and who had successfully fought back against the squadron that came to his home to arrest him. He and his household servants had actually struck back and killed two of them, and then Petrovic had successfully fled into the hills. He was known to be very brash and hot-tempered, which reportedly made him especially appealing to many of the rebels, and he was given the title of Prince of the Serbs. A rebel council continued to meet and was able to effectively govern Serbia for several years. They right away sent emissaries northward to St. Petersburg to try to get a Russian alliance. And they were at first rebuffed, since Russia was too occupied and bogged down in the Napoleonic Wars. But then, when there was a lull in the wars, the Serbs actually did get some partial support, including weapons, from Russia between 1806 and 1809, but that support was then withdrawn again as the wars with Napoleon restarted. And you can see this episode of this brief Russian alliance in 1806-9 as emblematic of Serbia's situation, where Russian support could sometimes be important and make a difference, but it was very unreliable and opportunistic. It really was a marriage of convenience that sometimes had a sort of rhetorical veneer of ethnic and religious solidarity laid over it. So after the Russians cut off their support in 1809-12, the Serbians gradually lost ground to the Ottomans. And the rebellion collapsed in 1812. The Janissaries rushed in and rained down slaughter, raiding, and arson, devastating every town and village. Kara Georgia, the so-called prince, fled the country and was able to survive in exile in Russia. And the repression and expropriation of the Serbian peasantry only intensified. However, in 1814, Russia finally defeated Napoleon, and a congress of representatives of the great powers of Europe convened in Vienna. And at this point, some Serbian notables saw another opportunity, and they sent emissaries from Vojvodina to Vienna to try to get Russian support again, or even the support of other foreign Western powers. They got some lukewarm words of support or lip service from the Russians, but no action. Nonetheless, in the spring of 1815, the peasantry again decided that they had nothing to lose, and another uprising broke out. 
This time, the ringleader who emerged was a former shepherd from the southern mountainous parts of Serbia named Miloš Obrenović. And Obrenović shrewdly led the rebels and forced the Turks to the negotiating table. The Ottomans agreed to a truce, and furthermore, they agreed to cede some basic internal autonomy to the Serbs, with Obrenović himself at their head as prince. Now, this situation was very ambiguous. There was no formal worked-out treaty, there were only oral agreements, and some Serbs wanted to basically try to keep the peace, consolidate their gains, and recover from the devastation of these wars and rebellions, while others wanted to keep fighting with the eventual goal of total independence. And in June 1817, Karajorja returned from exile in secret, presumably in order to foment another rebellion for full independence. But Miloš Obrenović had him apprehended and killed. But between 1817 and 1830, the Turks gradually ceded more and more powers to Miloš Obrenović, until by the 1830s he was more or less the de facto ruler of Serbia, and moreover the Serbian church was again declared fully independent. So from that time, from the 1830s, through the rest of the 19th century, there was a long struggle to rebuild and reassert Serbia once again as a political nation, often with medieval Serbia in mind as a forerunner and a template, but also to modernize, to bring this newly autonomous country into the modern world. And the political reestablishment of Serbia went hand in hand and further spurred on at the same time, a cultural renaissance, a rebuilding of an education system with the creation of schools that taught in the Serbian language, and a higher school, or Grande École, in Belgrade, which was later expanded to become the University of Belgrade. Also, to build up this educational system, many scholars and teachers were brought southward from Vojvodina, where there had long been schools and a sort of nascent, educated middle class, a lot of those leaders and intellectuals were then brought southward. There was, you could say, a sort of great return from Vojvodina back into the Serbian heartland. And more and more, a small middle class did emerge in Belgrade and in the smaller city of Niš. And this middle class of small merchants, teachers, artisans, joined together in partnership with the newly created state, to create theaters, a printing press, a national museum, and so forth. A very central mission of this sort of rebuilt cultural institutional infrastructure was collecting and celebrating Serb folkways, including music, literature, and the language. They were inspired to a great degree by Romantic nationalism as it was being encountered from the West. So linguists in the Balkans had actually begun studying the Serbian language back in the 1700s, but then this mission was taken up most dramatically by the great towering figure of Serbian folklore, art, and literature, which is Vuk Karadzic. So Vuk Karadzic was a scholar who grew up in a poor village in western Serbia on the Drina River, basically on the border of what is now Serbia and Bosnia. And he learned to read and write from the only literate person in his town. Literacy was extremely rare, especially out in rural Serbia. 
He then went to study at a monastery where conditions were very primitive. He reportedly had to use a reed dipped in a slurry of gunpowder in order to write because he didn't have a proper pen and ink. But nonetheless, in 1818, he composed the first Serbian dictionary, and he launched a campaign to reform spelling and grammar in Serbian in order to match the actual spoken vernacular language of the folk instead of having the writing and grammar mimic Old Church Slavonic. He met and collaborated with the Grimm brothers, who were undertaking a project to collect folklore and to study the languages and dialects of Germany. And like the Grimm brothers, he collected folklore around the Balkans, including so-called women's tales, but especially epic poetry and song, of which there was this rich and fertile tradition. And most famously, he collected and published volumes of folk epics, and he particularly elevated the Kosovo myth and encouraged people to see the new independence movement as the fulfillment of a national destiny that had been laid down in the Battle of Kosovo. Now, this was very important because, generally speaking, when a new nation-state is created, and that was in process of happening in Serbia, It needs some sense of national purpose or destiny. It's not really possible to rally people to a new political project by saying, let's be independent so that we can be normal and do nothing. Nationalism necessarily involves creating an imagined collective organism with a life, a purpose, and a destiny as captured in some narrative linking past, present, and future. So Vukorajic helped to define, in this sense, what the Serbian nation was, beyond just a territorial unit in the Ottoman map. Furthermore, he helped in this way to define what the Serbian collective is and who is part of this collective and who is not. So Karadzic's definition of the nation was fundamentally linguistic. In other words, those who speak Serbian, in quotation marks, are Serbs, And this is the case without regard to religion. So, for example, in 1849, later in his career, he published an essay on Balkan folklore, which he called, quote, the treasure box for the history, language, and customs of Serbians of all three faiths. So, in other words, here he is, he's referring to three faiths, in other words, Eastern Orthodox, Muslim, and Catholic. So, he's counting Catholics and Muslims as Serbs if they speak a dialect that he views as Serbian. So this is a complete change from the pre-existing Ottoman system of Milets, where people were grouped together and defined and governed according to their religion. So the new definition he's putting forward is ethno-linguistic, in a lot of ways similar to modern French or German national identity. So this can be seen as inclusive and ecumenical, But there are also certain basic problems with this redefinition of what it means to be Serbian. For one thing, many Serbian-speaking people were scattered all around the Balkans outside of Serbia, about one and a half million all in all, or about half of all so-called Serbians were actually outside the bounds of this principality of Serbia. So what to do with them? Secondly, there's the linguistic problem. All of the Slavic peoples in the Western Balkans all spoke very similar languages, including Croats and Bosnians, who were west of the traditional core area of Serbia. 
and the different dialects spoken in these different valleys and mountain ranges of the Balkans, they run along a continuum. There are not clear boundaries between them. And hence, one could say that all of them spoke some sort, some variety of Serbian, as Vuk himself seems to be implying when he speaks of Serbians of all three faiths. But many of those people did not consider themselves to be Serbs at all. Rather, they saw themselves as belonging to distinct and separate communities defined and delimited by religion. So what could one do with this very complicated, ambiguous situation? Would they have to somehow bring all of these different peoples with all their different religious traditions and identities and all these different parts of the Balkans? Would one have to somehow bring all of them together into the bounds of one Serbian state? Would they do this by migration? That seems impossible. Could an an additional one and a half million people be relocated into this small principality of Serbia? Or would they be brought into Serbia through expansion and conquest? And that seems to be the option that many people actually preferred by the mid-19th century more or less openly. For example, in 1844, Serbia's interior minister drew up a document called the Nacertania, which was a secret memorandum outlining the goals and rough plan to expand Serbia to the south and west, taking in all the loosely speaking Serbian areas and covering most of what had once been the Serbian Empire at its height in the mid-1300s. So by the 1840s, the idea was gradually gaining currency of recreating a so-called Greater Serbia. And this went hand-in-hand with a widespread feeling, especially among educated, literate Serbs, a feeling of an urgent need for Serbia to catch up, especially with the Western European powers, after having been left out of the national power game for centuries. They had to catch up in space, in terms of territory, and also in time, in terms of entering the modern age. So people were driven by a pressing sense of national mission to lead and liberate all of the Balkans. But the question, even if one subscribed to this grandiose sense of mission, the question was how to do that. When Serbia was still a new, young state with fairly little revenue, a small military, and an even smaller cadre of educated officials and diplomats, and that, to top it all off, was still not even technically fully independent from the Ottomans. So Serbian politics divided over this question very early on, and it became a very deep and acrimonious divide, beginning early in the days of Miloš Obrinović in the 1830s. And it would only continue to widen and intensify over the rest of the century. There was a split, broadly speaking, one could say, into conservative and liberal factions. And the main points of contention that divided these two factions included, firstly, how should Serbia be governed? Should it set itself up as a Russian-style autocracy or as a British-style constitutional monarchy with a parliament? And some Serbs argued in favor of a parliamentary system by saying that Serbs had a long-standing tradition of local democracy in the village councils and the elected headmen. Secondly, what should be the main political priority of this new state? Should it be achieving full formal independence from the Ottomans, which still had not happened? Or should it be expanding Serbia's borders in order to embrace all so-called Serbs? Thirdly, where should Serbia look for foreign allies, if anywhere? 
Should they take advantage of sympathy and support from Russia? Or should they try to keep the peace in their own neighborhood and not rely on any foreign sponsors? So these two factions, the conservative and the liberal, feuded for control from the 1830s through the 1890s. And the conservatives favored retrenchment, stability, and the securing of full independence from the Ottomans. They wanted conciliation and peaceable coexistence with their neighbors, most notably, of course, the Habsburg Empire, right on their border. And they supported a strong monarchy to maintain unity and stability. The liberals, by contrast, wanted to expand and unite all Serbs. They wanted to cement a close alliance with Russia to advance Slavic liberation and greater Slavic unity. And they supported a democratic system with a limited monarchy. Each of these factions, moreover, had a princely dynasty that was favorable to their side. So the conservatives supported Milos Obrinovich and his successors in what was called the Obrinovich dynasty, whereas the liberals preferred descendants of Kara Georgia Petrovich, the leader of that first uprising, and his descendants came to be called the Kara Georgievich dynasty. So the rulership the princedom of Serbia passed back and forth between these two dynasties, and it was often a tumultuous contest for power with several abdications, coups, and assassinations. Most of the time, the throne was held by the Obrinovich dynasty, except on two occasions when the liberals were able to transfer the throne to Kara Georgievich's. Despite this tumultuous political scene, some improvements were made, with each side accomplishing certain important goals. As for the liberals, they instituted a series of constitutions that limited the powers of the monarch. They created first a state council of ministers that could check the power of the prince. And this first constitution, when it was adopted in 1838, so outraged the prince Milos Obrinovich that he abdicated and went into exile for several years, but later came back when political tides turned. Then from the 1850s onward, they instituted more new and revised constitutions that created a permanent elected parliament with nearly all men able to vote. And by the end of the 19th century, they had laws in place granting wide freedoms, including freedom of religion and the press. In 1844, under Prince Alexander Karadjordjevich, they also instituted the first standard civil law code. On the other hand, for the conservatives... Beginning under Milos Obrinovich, they instituted a homestead law which guaranteed peasants' rights to keep their homes and small plots of land regardless of their debts or whether they went into bankruptcy. And this is part of how the conservatives built up an initial base of favor and support among the peasant populace was by ensuring this basic floor of stability and survival for the peasantry. Later, under Milos's son, Mihailo, they persuaded the Ottomans to remove the last remaining Turkish troops out of Serbia. And under the great-nephew, Milan Obrinovich, Serbia engaged in a war with the Ottomans in 1876-78, which resulted largely in a draw, but it did force the Ottomans to finally formally recognize Serbia as fully independent. And this was ratified in a multilateral peace agreement after the war. Four years later, in 1882, Milan was formally proclaimed as king. And so for the first time in more than 500 years, 
one could again speak of the existence of a kingdom of Serbia. But nonetheless, despite these successful reforms and improvements, both sides, the liberal and conservative sides, failed disastrously on the diplomatic front. So as for conservatives, they tended to favor a peaceable diplomatic approach to foreign relations, and they imagined that they could pursue the expansion and unification of greater Serbia through peaceable politics on the model of Bismarck and Camillo Cavour in Italy. And they believed that this necessarily would involve keeping the peace with the Habsburg Empire and using them as a friendly counterbalance to the Ottomans. But the hope that this strategy could work was dashed, largely due to the upheaval of 1848. So in 1848, during that year of revolutionary outbreaks all over Europe, the Hungarians in the Habsburg Empire rose up, demanding greater independence and democratic reform in Hungary. Now, this affected the Serbs in Vojvodina, since that was technically part of Hungary, and also Croats on the Adriatic coast, who were under Hungarian rule, were also alarmed. So the Serbs and Croats estimated that if the Hungarians succeeded and achieved their goals, then the Serbs would lose their autonomy that they have in their own duchy, and even the Orthodox Church might be persecuted or abolished. So hence, the Serbs sided with Austria against the Hungarian rebels in the violence in 1848. And in the ensuing war, Vojvodina was ravaged and devastated. Many Serbs fled southward into Serbia proper. And after the rebellion failed, the Serbs lost their autonomy anyway. And they were put under repressive military rule, just as the defeated Hungarians were. So their loyal support for Austria had been all for naught. And one Croatian journalist remarked, quote, we received as a reward what the Hungarians received as a punishment. So after this disaster, Habsburg-Austria-Hungary came to be seen as just as great an enemy as the Ottomans had been, or arguably even greater. And this fear and animosity was then confirmed further in 1878 when Austria-Hungary occupied Bosnia, and then refused to give it up. Rather than liberate it and grant independence or allow it to join Serbia, they continued to occupy it indefinitely. So by that point, it was apparent that the conservative approach to building up Serbia territorially was a failure. Now, on the other hand, there were the liberals, and the liberals were more openly expansionist and more openly committed to restoring a Serb empire which may in some ways seem ironic, according to our connotations today, where we might think of liberal as meaning cosmopolitan, pacifist. But really, in the 19th century context, this makes sense, since liberalism at root rests upon the idea that sovereignty resides in the people at large, and that this popular sovereign must be an organically unified nation in terms of language or ethnicity, and hence, in a setting like the Balkans, a liberal state could only legitimize itself by acting on behalf of this popular sovereign, this unified ethnos. So the liberals are more openly expansionist and favor an aggressive, even warlike approach to building up Serbia. But ultimately, they don't do any better than the conservatives do. They continually argue that expansion is possible with Russian help. 
But this theory was then tested in the war of 1876-78, to when the Serbs joined together with the Russians in an attack upon the Ottomans. And after that war ended, Russia was able to grab some more territory for itself along the Black Sea, but they basically abandoned their Serb allies, leaving them high and dry, with no significant territorial gains. So the Serbians basically saw themselves as abandoned by their unreliable erstwhile allies, just like back in 1809. So the result of all of these events was that Serbians perceived that after having emerged onto the world stage, the great powers of Europe had basically ganged up on them and were preventing their growth and the fulfillment of their national destiny. And hence, as a result, the once-dominant liberals who had put their hopes in this idea of a Slavic alliance with Russia, they were discredited just like the conservatives, and they came to be superseded by increasingly more militant political parties who wanted both more drastic social reform and more militarization and expansion. So in the 1880s, the Progressive Party displaced the liberals, took the majority in parliament, and formed a government on their own initiative. And this government supported industrialization and greater democratic rights. And diplomatically, they moved away from Russia, trying to uh, somehow build up Serbia's own capacity to assert itself on its own. But after about a decade in the 1890s, the progressives were then superseded by the radical party. And the, the radicals were militant populists, influenced to a great degree by Western socialists and anarchists. And ma many of them had been educated in France and had picked up many of the radical ideas fomenting in France. They instituted decentralization, local self-rule in the country, towns, and villages, which appealed to the peasant majority. And they called constantly for more aggressive military intervention in order to liberate Serbs in places like Bosnia, Macedonia, and Kosovo. They tried to reopen the diplomatic alignment with Russia, but again, this didn't bear much fruit. And ultimately, by the end of the century, one could see that parliament was increasingly radicalized at the same time that the state was more and more militarized. And ironically, as this civilian government called more and more strenuously for military action, they also increasingly ceded political power and initiative to the army. So militant nationalism and irredentism, which is an Italian word meaning the belief that it is the right and duty of a nation to redeem lands that hold their countrymen but are not under their control, have not been liberated. Nationalism and irredentism pervaded the army, and military officers more and more saw themselves, not kings or parliamentary politicians, they saw themselves as the bearers of the national destiny who had to fulfill the Serbian nation's mission. They were impatient with princes or kings that they saw as failing to act. So, for example, in the late 1890s, the military blamed King Alexander Obrinovich for failing to intervene and take advantage of the Greek-Turkish war over Cyprus. And this animosity and internal conflict came to a head finally after 1900, when King Alexander was deeply unpopular and distrusted. In addition to his diplomatic failures, he was often seen to be manipulated by his meddling parents and by his wife, who was the subject of rumors about her salacious sex life. 
And so in 1901, a small group of military officers began to meet and plot the overthrow of the King Alexander. And this plot gradually grew over the next two years into a massive conspiracy involving over 120 officers and government officials. The main ringleader, it seems, was Captain Dragugin Dmitrievich, the head of military intelligence, who used the codename Apis, which was adopted from an Egyptian bull deity. And on the night of May 29, 1903, a group of officers from this conspiratorial network broke into the royal palace in Belgrade, hunted down and killed the king, the queen, and five royal officials, including the prime minister and the minister of the army, and dumped their mutilated bodies into the palace courtyard. This coup-making cabal then invited Petar Karadjordjevich, the grandson of Karadjordja Petrovich, to take up the throne. This new king, Petar, who was older, he was in his 50s, was fervently nationalistic and supported liberal and democratic governance. He had studied abroad in France, and he translated Mills on Liberty into Serbian. And as king, he sponsored the expansion of the Belgrade University. So in many ways, he was seen as a modern, Western-looking monarch. But he also worked hand-in-glove with the military, which was now the real power behind the throne. And together, they worked to strengthen and cement the Russian alliance. And the conspiratorial core group that had orchestrated the assassination of the previous king in 1903, they did not disappear, but rather continued to operate and evolve behind the scenes. In 1908, they received a renewed sense of urgency when Austria-Hungary outright annexed Bosnia. So no longer even maintained any pretext that they would ever allow Bosnia to be free and self-governing or join Serbia. They outright annexed it into the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which spurred on liberal nationalists in Serbia to hold a convention where they resolved to found a secretive pan-Slavist organization called Narodna Odbrana, or National Defense, which would be tasked with spreading anti-Austrian propaganda and planting spies and saboteurs abroad in Austro-Hungarian territory with the aim of liberating, in quotation marks, Slavic lands that were under Habsburg rule. They also made alliances with existing Slavic underground groups in Austrian territory, such as Young Bosnia. Three years later, in 1911, Apis went further and founded another, even more exclusive and secretive society, mainly of army officers, under the name Unification or Death. But informally, this group under Apis came to be called the Black Hand. Apis's group published a propaganda magazine called Piedmont in honor of the statelet in Italy that had led the unification of Italy. And they soon more or less took over control of Narodna Odbrana, which became a sort of political front group for the Black Hand. And they received support and money from the king's son, the crown prince Alexander. So meanwhile, as all of this kind of paramilitary work and intrigue was going on with the aim of undermining Austria-Hungary, Serbia also formed an alliance with other independent Balkan states in order to attack southward in the other direction, the soft target of Macedonia. And Macedonia was the last remaining Ottoman territory in Europe, comprising basically what is now northern Greece, north Macedonia, Kosovo, and Albania. 
So Serbia, Montenegro, Greece, and Bulgaria formed a Balkan League and jointly attacked the Ottoman forces in Macedonia in the fall of 1912. The League altogether, their forces outnumbered the Ottomans about 700,000 to 320,000. And the Balkan League was able to win this war, but with severe casualties. And in the process, all parties on all sides of this war committed massacres of civilians and destruction of civilian towns. So usually they were not liberating their own countrymen in this war, but rather invading and attacking rival ethnic groups, leading to slaughter and displacement of the sort that we would today call ethnic cleansing. The League won the war by the end of spring 1913, and Serbia gained the most territory of all. It took Kosovo, much of what's now Albania and North Macedonia, and in all doubled its land area. So this was a smashing victory for Serbia, but it came with certain real problems. Firstly, Bulgaria was jealous. They felt that they had been cheated of their fair share of the spoils. And so they then attacked Serbia in the summer of 1913. This led to a second Balkan War, which Serbia was also able to win, but only after taking even more losses of men, weapons, and money. The second problem was that the areas that Serbia captured were not ethnically Serbian. Even Kosovo, which had once been the sort of southern borderland of Serbia, was now mostly Albanian in its population. And the claim to Kosovo was really only historic, as part of this sort of dream of restoring the historic Serbian Empire. But apart from that, these were really foreign lands that had very few Serbs in them. And thirdly, the third problem was that the great powers of Europe, especially Russia and Austria-Hungary, were alarmed by Serbia's success and sudden rise to power. And so they rushed to intervene and to limit Serbia's gains. And they recognized, as part of this, they recognized the new independent state of Albania and gave it support in order specifically to hem in Serbia and block Serbia from getting direct access to a seaport on the Mediterranean. So hence, by the end of 1913, summing up the situation, the aftermath of the Balkan Wars seemed to show that Serbia's real problem that was limiting its ability to fulfill its goals was the hostile great power of Austria-Hungary. It reinforced that the real target for expansion should not be to the south, outside of the traditional Serbian lands, but rather to the north and west, into Bosnia and Vojvodina, in order to liberate the Slavs that were under the Habsburg dynasty. But the problem, of course, was how to do that. When you consider, firstly, they had a smaller military than the Habsburg state, with very limited capabilities, and it had just been severely weakened by these two taxing wars. And also, they had no coalition of allies, as they had when they attacked Ottoman Macedonia. So there were various possible responses to this dilemma. But the answer that many people in power in the Serbian state and military embraced was that they should continue this campaign by covert and irregular means, as they had already started several years earlier. So means like sabotage, assassination, and incitement. And a lot of these tactics, they took inspiration from what had been done for several decades by this point, by anarchists and by radical independence movements like the Armenian movement. So specifically, the Black Hand began plotting 
aggressive steps to further this campaign. And leaders of the Black Hand became increasingly aggravated and disillusioned with the government and even with Narodna Odbrana, which wanted to a great degree to wait and regroup and recover from these Balkan wars before then confronting Austria. But the Black Hand leaders were afraid of losing another moment of opportunity and initiative, and they didn't want to see detente and reconciliation between Serbia and Austria, which they thought would lose this moment of possibility to join together with Bosnians against Austria-Hungary. So hence, by the spring of 1914, some members of the Black Hand, possibly including Apis himself, resolved on recruiting revolutionaries from Bosnia to assassinate the Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria-Hungary, who they were aware tended to be a voice of conciliation towards the Serbs, and hence presented a political problem. So in early May, three teenage Bosnian militants from young Bosnia were brought over into Serbia where members of the Serbian military gave them training in shooting and bomb throwing in the woods outside of Belgrade. It seems the ringleader of this little group was the 19-year-old Gavrilo Princip, a Bosnian Serb who was the best marksman of the three. A few weeks later, on May 28th, they were smuggled back over the border into Bosnia, each one crossing separately and individually, carrying two bombs, a revolver, and a cyanide capsule. They then separately made their way and reconnoitered in Sarajevo, where they lay low for several weeks. And according to some reports that emerged from the time, it seems that the Serbian government found out about this secret plot, and they told Apis to squash it and to recall the assassins. But either Apis never sent the order to scrap the plan, or if he did, it was already too late. The three assassins were already in hiding in Sarajevo, awaiting the official visit on June 28th of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria-Hungary, the heir apparent to the Habsburg throne. So who was he? Why was he going to Sarajevo? And who and what did he represent? So that should be the next installment in this series, which will be part three, Austria-Hungary. So if you can help to support this podcast and keep these lectures coming, please go to my Patreon page and sign up as a supporter. And if you join at any level, even if it's just a dollar, you'll have access to all of my patron-only materials, including the last myth of the month on culture. And finally, I'd like to thank my current active patrons, whose names begin with G. So thank you to Garen, GCS, Jeannie Lyons, Jeffrey Schulenberger, Gerald Eliasser, Gregory Thompson, Greta Svalberg, Griffith Goodhand, and Gulb. Thank you.